I'm being led to uh, temporarily step back from our verse-by-verse exposition of the great uh, New Testament book of Hebrews in favor of looking for some weeks at some of Jesus' parables and some of Jesus' um, miracles. And we're going to look first at a parable together in the moments we have today, the parable of the mustard seed. It could well be that you've heard this parable before in your own private reading of the scriptures or in Sunday school, or vacation Bible school, or at your family altar with your Christian parents. Many of us have heard the parable of the mustard seed. I suppose there could be some who never have. But this is the parable we want to focus in on together this morning. I want to share five preliminaries about all parables, including this one. Number one, parables always teach from the known to the unknown. That's what parables do. They teach from something that is known to something that is unknown. Second thing we need to know is that one-third of our Lord's teaching style was parables. He was very fond of parables. He used many of them. One-third of all his teaching were parables. Third, each of Jesus' parables were given either to solve a problem or to answer a question. And so forth, if we're going to accurately interpret any parable, we have to search the contextual verses, the preceding verses, to see what was the question or what was the problem. And then we'll see the parable that Jesus gave an answer either to the question or the problem. The last thing I'd like us to know about parables in general is that it is impossible to discover accurate truth within a parable if we try to superimpose 21st century life and culture onto the first century parable. What we have to do instead is look at the first century parable that Jesus taught in the context of the first century. What was going on, what Jesus was a part of, what he was facing, and then we take the timeless truth out of the parable in the first century context when we get the accurate problem solved or question answered, then we take it from the first century where it started in Jesus' teaching and bring it all the way forward to our century, the 21st century, so that we can apply the timeless truth of any particular parable. And so with all that background in place, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 13, two verses, verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 13. He, that is Jesus, presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. This is Jesus' parable of the mustard seed. Before we go very far into understanding it, we have to realize that at this point of time, in Jesus' public ministry, which is of three years' duration, 33 years when he was crucified, but three years of public ministry, at this point, by this point in Jesus Christ's public ministry, his 12 men knew a few things. They knew that the kingdom of God that he taught and preached And that he himself, as the king of that kingdom, had enemies. Jesus' first followers knew there were enemies against the kingdom of God and enemies against the king God, Jesus. They knew that Jesus 
had enemies. And by following him, they knew that they also had enemies. These first followers of Jesus who first heard this parable witnessed how Satan was doing many evil things to try to thwart the preaching of the kingdom that Jesus was doing. For instance, they knew all about King Herod killing all the little boys under two years old. They knew the Pharisees' multitude of objections to Jesus. They knew the Jews, even at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, that the Jews were already seeking to kill him. And they knew that John the Baptist had been beheaded for talking about this kingdom. Those disciples back then surely had plenty of reasons to wonder if this kingdom of God thing stood a chance to survive or if it would just succumb to all the opposition. It was not at all unreasonable for them to question whether the kingdom would flourish or fizzle, whether it would be victorious or it would be vanquished. It was entirely reasonable for them to wonder whether King Jesus would have any subjects other than they themselves. These were all reasonable questions they had when Jesus spoke the parable of the mustard seed. You know, in a congregation like ours this morning, January 20th, 2019, I believe that we have some of the questions that the disciples had, like, is there ever going to be an end to sin and evil? Will Jesus ever be taken seriously by the majority of humans? Will Jesus win in the end? Will every knee bow? Will every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? Will that happen? Will God's kingdom come and will God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Will it? After all, God's will in heaven this morning is being done completely, swiftly, without any opposition. Will that will of God ever be seen here on earth? Maybe those are some of your questions. Well, Jesus' parable of the mustard seed answers both the historic questions that his disciples asked and the parable answers the current questions that we ask. And the Lord went to a mustard seed. He went to a mustard seed to compare the kingdom of heaven with something they knew on earth. Some have pointed out, thinking themselves to be smarty pants, that in Jesus' time, there actually were some seeds that were bigger than mustard seeds. And some of these persons try to make the case that Jesus was wrong about the mustard seed being the smallest of all seeds, so therefore all of his other teaching must be suspect. Well, what we say to that is, The critics are suspect, not Jesus. In fact, in Romans 3, verse 4, the part of verse 4, the scriptures puts all this this way. May it never be, rather let God be found true, and though every man be found a liar. Romans says, if you've got a problem reconciling what God has said in his word and what people think, it's the people who have a problem, not God. 
And when the mustard seed was cited by the Lord Jesus as being the smallest of all the seeds, he wasn't wrong. They thought he was wrong, but he wasn't wrong. He was right. But whatever Jesus' point was about the mustard seed, mark it down, we are prone to get that wrong, not Jesus. (laughs) As it turns out, when you find a mustard tree in Israel, there are seed pods on the tree. But when you break open, when you crush a seed pod of a mustard tree, there's something inside. It's like a black smudge. And that black smudge, that black dust, has microscopically sized mustard seeds. That's the real mustard seeds. The pods are just the carrying case for the mustard seeds. So Jesus had it right. No surprise. (laughs) No surprise. Jesus said, take the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, and you know what? The hearers, the disciples, and anyone else who heard Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, when Jesus said mustard seed, they knew about the smudge. They knew that these minuscule, Barely visible black seeds that make up the black smudge inside the pod of a mustard tree. Those are what are the mustard seeds. And so when Jesus likened his kingdom to a mustard seed, the average person didn't have to have a botanical botanical science biology degree at a college. The average person knew about the smudge and knew about the seeds in the smudge. They are the smallest seeds of Jesus' day because they were the smallest seeds that could ever, the diameter could ever be considered of all seeds. They were the smallest seeds that could even attempt to be weighed in Jesus' day. So when Jesus said, consider the mustard seed, bing, they're all thinking about the smudge. Bing, they're all thinking about the seed that's the smallest that could be measured and weighed. It would be like this. If I changed it around, where we weren't talking about smallness, but we were talking about largeness. If you said, all you were to say, great white, <laughs> and I would know that's the largest species of shark. Jesus said mustard seed, and they knew that's the smallest, microscopically small seed there is. Jesus wasn't mistaken. The critics are mistaken. The reason the Lord pointed to the mustard seed was that the hearers all understood it to be the smallest of all the seeds. And he was, Jesus was wanting to make some points about his kingdom. Points that had to do with the phenomenon of mustard seeds. Ready? Here's the first thing Jesus wanted to say. He wanted to say that his kingdom is very, very small in its beginnings. The second thing he wanted to say with using the mustard seed was that his kingdom would easily be thought to be insignificant. Small and insignificant. The third reason I believe that Jesus cited the mustard seed in this parable is that he was trying to teach that that mustard seed was fast 
destined to be a mustard tree. Verse 32. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, as as astounding as what I'm going to tell you is, namely, that typically one mustard seed grows into a mustard tree, perhaps 10 to 12 feet tall, as remarkable as that is, as they say on late night television, wait, there's more. There is a case, a verified case, where one microscopic mustard seed in one year grew to being a tree of 32 feet high. (laughs) That's certainly big enough to say what Jesus said and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So why did Jesus turn to something as common as a mustard seed to talk about his kingdom? He did so because he wanted them to know that both are very small at their beginnings. And both can very easily be considered insignificant. And both the kingdom and the seed is fast destined to be the equivalent of a tree. And there's a fourth reason Jesus used the mustard seed about his kingdom. It's going to wind up being plenty big. Plenty big. Soon it's going to be in the fifth place. Soon it's going to be undeniably growing huge. You know something? You cannot miss the progress and the change of something which is growing up from being nearly invisible as being as much as 32 feet high. You cannot miss the fact that it's growing exponentially. It's growing rapidly. It's growing steadily. You can't miss that. Now, you've heard me say before that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. And if we go back to the Old Testament prophet Daniel, maybe as you've been hearing Jesus' parable and referencing his kingdom to be like a tree where the birds of the air come to nest, maybe you've been thinking as a good Old Testament student that something happened in seven centuries before Christ in the ancient province kingdom of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. And he didn't know what it meant. And so he called the Jewish bureaucrat, civil servant, Daniel, because he had heard that Daniel was good at interpreting visions. And so this is what we read in Daniel 4, verses 10 through 12. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. As you've heard, the fruit of Nebuchadnezzar's vision tree fed both the birds and the animals. The birds in the tree, the animals under the tree. 
And Daniel 4 goes on to report that Daniel interpreted this tree vision to King Nebuchadnezzar, and in so doing, he told the king, and he was accurate, the big tree in your vision represented the king's big Babylonian kingdom. Went on. The birds and the animals in your vision represent those nations which will receive benefits from King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So, how was King Nebuchadnezzar's tree vision linked in to Jesus' parable of the mustard seed? To answer that question, we must find out how the average Jew listening to Jesus' mustard seed parable would have connected it to King Nebuchadnezzar's vision of a big tree which that listener to Jesus knew about fully well. The average Jew hearing Jesus teach would have made this connection between Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Jesus' mustard seed. They knew their Old Testament. So let me say this. Moving off of Nebuchadnezzar and his vision and Jesus' mustard seed parable and its truth, just for a minute, let me move back from both to say this. If we are realists, and we should be realists, as we believe in Jesus for salvation and sanctification, we should still be realists. We should face things. If we are realists, we must admit that currently the situation is that Satan's kingdom is advancing. Have you noticed? The gospel is generally opposed. The majority of souls who die go to hell and not to heaven. God's will currently is not being done on earth as it is being done in heaven. That's realism. That's realism. But that's not the final story. And the parable of the mustard seed was encouragement and still is encouragement that Christ's kingdom will come. And Christ's kingdom will exponentially grow. And Christ's kingdom will win. And Christ's kingdom will bless. And Christ's kingdom will provide what believers like you and I have long longed for. And so let's review. Why Jesus went to the mustard seed to give a parable teaching about his kingdom. Number one, to make the point, is very small in its beginnings. Think about it. Jesus had 11 men. 12, but one was a fake. He had 11 men to start this kingdom on earth. That small. And then Jesus went to the mustard seed to say that his kingdom would easily thought, be thought to be insignificant. Do you remember what happened in Pilate's hall? The Lord Jesus arrested falsely, beaten, flogged, brought before a Roman cohort, perhaps as many as 600 soldiers, beaten, punched, mocked. They put a crown of thorns jammed on our Lord's head and said, if you're a king, prophesy who hit you. You see, at first, the kingdom seemed insignificant to those Roman soldiers. They made sport of the king of the kingdom. A third point for Jesus going to the mustard seed was to teach that the kingdom was destined to be a tree. 
Did you know that by the end of the book of Acts, 100% of the known world around the Mediterranean basin had at least heard the gospel? Fourth, the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus went to that parable and shared that parable to say that his kingdom was going to wind up being huge. Huge. In heaven, we know from the book of Revelation that believers in Jesus Christ from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every ethnicity, every nation will worship the Lamb of God. Jesus' kingdom is going to be huge. And last, at least for this study, Jesus went to the mustard seed to teach that his kingdom was soon going to be undeniably growing huge. A microscopic seed to a 12-foot-high tree or greater. Think of it, that's what happened according to church history. It was Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Antioch, Rome, North Africa, Asia Minor, Arabia, Greece, Europe, Asia, North America, the rest of Africa, South America, Australia, tribal people groups, and unreached people groups. Some years ago now, probably 30 years ago now, I heard a very, very interesting and encouraging thing from the U.S. Center for World Mission. The U.S. Center for World Mission was based in Pasadena, California, and was the leading cutting-edge evangelical monitoring place for world mission, the making disciples of all the nations. And some 30 years ago, the statistic that the U.S. Center for World Mission put forward is that every day, approximately 86,000 persons trust Christ alone are converted around the world. That was 30 years ago. Let's take the 30-year-old stat. That means that today, before the sun goes down on every time zone on the globe, that at least 86,000 persons will come to Christ and be saved. (laughs) This, This kingdom is growing undeniably huge. So what should we take from this parable of this mustard seed? What should we put in our purse or in our pocket as we walk away today from service. Let me give you quickly, very quickly, seven things. First, don't despise the day of small things. You say, I'm just one Christian at my workplace. I'm just one Christian in my family. I'm just a a single parent Christian trying to raise kids without a mate. Don't despise the day of small things. with your family or your work or this church? What could I contribute to this church? How would my giving make any difference in the overall budget? Don't despise the day of small things. What difference can anybody make in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas when we are in a moral slide? Don't despise the day of small things. Pray. Second, you ought to live with the end in mind. Jesus was saying to his disciples that although the the kingdom seemed small, it seemed faltering, it seemed frail, it seemed like it wasn't maybe going to go anywhere, he said, think of the mustard seed and the tree that grows out of it. Think 
and minister with the end in mind. You say, how does that work? I'll tell you how that works. You start with your own life before Christ, and you think about that. And then you think about the differences that have come in your life since you've been converted, since you've become a Christian. Now, you don't just have life. You have new life in Christ. Think about that. And within new life in Christ, think about the spiritual gifts God's given you. Are you using them? Think about the specific good works that God's calling you to do. Are you doing them? Think about the spiritual fruit that God wants to produce on the branches of your life. Live with the end in mind. Think about your sicknesses, your weaknesses, your challenges, your trials. What is God wanting to do in those things in you? And then once he does those things in you, how does he want you to share the truth of blessing and trial and sufficiency and grace when you are suffering with others? And then think about your life on earth as a redeemed Christian ending. And one day going before the beam of the judgment seat of Christ, and Christ evaluates the quality of your work here on earth. Is it rewardable or is it not rewardable? And then go beyond the bema to the millennium, the kingdom that Jesus Christ is speaking of. Go to that time when right is made wrong and and evil is suppressed and Satan's in a pit. Think about that. And then let's go for the main thing, the big one, the new heavens and the new earth, where there is no sin, no night, And all that is Jesus and all the Father and the Spirit is there to enjoy forever for the believer. We need to live with the end in mind. Those disciples need to hear about the fact that a mustard seed may be small, but it grows to be a humongous, viable tree in a short period of time. We need to know the moment we trusted Jesus to be our Savior is the beginning of a gateway, of a journey, of a pathway that we are going to be one day with Christ forever, nothing between us. Faith will become sight. Third thing. Don't please, please don't give Satan the last say. He doesn't get the last say. Don't be walking around glum and saying to people, if you only knew my past, what people did to me. Don't give Satan the last say. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't see Satan under every rock of difficulty you face in a day. He's real and he tries to harass us, but he's not behind every difficulty we face. Some of my difficulties are my making. Number four, this is a good one. Wear the label insignificant with pride. You understand? There are people who know you that label you insignificant. Oh, she's just a Christian. She's never been to college, you know. She's just a Christian. Oh, yeah, he's one of these Jesus followers. What have they ever accomplished in our city? When someone labels you with the tag insignificant, please know they labeled Jesus first with that tag. Carpenter's son, a term of derision. He doesn't even know who his father is. Wasn't Joseph. When someone labels you, dear believer, as insignificant, 
like a lanyard at a conference you go to on a seminar or a name tag, hello, my name is. When someone sticks it on your chest and says, hello, my name is insignificant, don't chafe under that. Jesus lived with that. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1, 25 to 31. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Someone hangs a tag around your, week, your neck this week, insignificant, take it. Someone labels you at the workplace or your school as insignificant, accept it. Knowing Jesus uses the persons that the world deems insignificant. He'll use you. Fifth, assume that Jesus is never wrong, but persons often are. You know, anybody you run into says everybody gets to heaven any way they choose, and there's no hell. They're called universalists, and they're called heretics. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when you run across a person who's uh, educated beyond their intelligence to be a universalist, then you understand that if anybody's wrong when Jesus and other so-called truth is held together, it's the other so-called truth that's wrong, never Jesus. The sixth thing to take out of this parable, I think, is go beyond the pod. (laughs) You know, the pods were on the mustard tree and people walked up to the tree and said, boy, those are mustard seeds. No, there weren't mustard seeds. They were encasements, carrying cases for the mustard seed smudge, microscopic seeds. (laughs) So go beyond the pod. When you think of the kingdom of God, go beyond that to the church of God, Jews and Gentiles who are saved. Go beyond the church of God, the kingdom of God, the church of God, to local churches like ours. Push the pod even further. Go down to your pastors and push the pod even further to go right down to yourself. Go beyond the pod. And last, and I love this one, consider China. Before 1949, it is estimated that there were 3 million Christians. And that figure included Roman Catholics. Today, last year, 2018, The number of believers in China has grown from 3 to 43.5 million. There are two kinds of churches in China. There is the underground church, the secret church, and there is the three-self church. The three-self church is sanctioned by the Chinese government and basically dictates and censors everything that's said in one of their churches to be what the political party wants to have said. 
Remember Stephen Fu, who's from amongst us gone back to China. He was in the, an underground church. This week in the news, the authorities in China have been cracking down with brutal violence, imprisoning people, killing people who are Christians, incarcerating and torturing pastors. We need to pray for Stephen Fu, our friend, and others that we may know in the Chinese church in general. So what am I saying? Like the mustard seed that started out so very small and grew so very tall, so fast, the church in China started at 3 million persons in 1949. By 2018, it's 43.5 million Chinese Christians in the underground church, plus an estimated another 1.5 million Christians in the three self-church, the government church. God has his genuine converts even in a place like that. And so when you add 43.5 million to 1.5 million, you get an estimate of perhaps 45 million brothers and sisters in Christ in China. Here's the other thing. And the Commonwealth Bank and the Scotia Bank and the Royal Bank can't do anything like this. That number is growing annually by 6.5%. Every year, over every year, this number grows by 6.5%. So that means, if Christ doesn't come back for the church first, that the 2018 estimate of 45 million Chinese Christians will grow by the end of 2019 to 48 million Christians. Be encouraged that you're part of a kingdom that is growing fast, a kingdom that will not fail, a kingdom that will not be opposed to the point of being stopped, a kingdom where Jesus Christ will rule and reign and make rights prevalent, the right thing, the righteous thing he will bring to pass in time and space real-time history of human lives in his kingdom. I'm looking forward to that. But in the meanwhile, I'm going to watch the mustard tree grow. Because if you think it's big now, you've not, not seen anything yet. Watch the tree. Remember, it came from the mustard seed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this parable. We thank you for Jesus' concern and supreme wisdom to teach us about his kingdom using something as basic as a seed of a tree. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged this morning that we are part of that kingdom. And if anyone in the sound of my voice is not yet a Christian, I pray that they would turn from themselves to Jesus in faith, believe that he is the Savior of the world, and trust him and only him and be born into a place in this kingdom with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.